From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, Tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Friday, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you? Uh, pretty good, even though we're navigating the waters of synodality Yeah, these so days. Let's, uh, let's talk about that a little bit. So mm-hmm. what, uh, what do we know, what should we know, what is widely propagated that just isn't true, and what can we <laughs> expect? Well, uh, I'm not sure I can know the answer to that, or anyone can. Well, prob- um, probably nothing of substance for another year, right? Right, because there will be a second edition of this a, in a year from now. But even in the context of this year's uh, synod and synodality, uh, it's been uh, some have said uh, silence was imposed on the group, but rather they, uh, the Pope has said he wants them to uh, listen and to pray and to not be uh, engaged uh, with journalists, uh, but, but rather to that interior conversation of the synod participants and... Uh, listening with the Holy Spirit to, uh, you know, to what is said, and digesting it, and of course then have to be formulated in the small groups that will be formulated, you know, propositions or ideas or statements and comments uh, regarding what was discussed. Uh, So we're not going to hear a lot out of the Synod. Uh, We will obviously be doing coverage on TV with the uh, with uh, EWTN News Nightly, so people can tune in there or to a synodality page, which uh, National Catholic Register has up and running to to give you what news is available out of the uh, out of the synod, and uh, we will just have to wait. I, I think th- the greatest consideration for for a, a Catholic who is not participating in the synod uh, is to remember the the promises that Christ made to the Church. This seems like a, you know, a new thing. It is certainly a new thing in terms of how Peter exercises, how the Petrine office exercises uh, its uh, power of governance, its uh, charism of governance. Uh, And that is within the Pope's prerogative to choose the method of receiving advice and acting on it. Uh, That's part of his papal primacy. So I think we await in faith, and we await in hope, and we await with charity 
uh, the results of the synod, whatever we hear out of it this year, or whatever we will hear out of it at the end of it, and of course, in any final document which the Pope may may or may not give us, he's not obliged to uh, to to do anything with it. Uh, but I think other examples that have been done, uh, there was a great deal of hoopla over the synod on the Amazon, uh, and there were some concrete ideas that have been, I think, acted upon to some extent. But despite all of the hoopla and the concerns of, that were expressed at the time, not nothing terribly extreme that was not already doable and within the authority of the church to do, such as giving very probati uh, ordination. And I have read that they've not actually done that very often. Uh, the idea men, being that proven married men in parts of the basin that did, weren't properly served by clergy could do what is common in the Eastern Church, and that is the, uh, a married priest who uh, takes care of some small flock in a village or town or whatever. Uh, and so there's history on that, both uh, in primarily in the East. So but I don't, those, don't think we're going to see yeah. any great, great thunderous things this year or even yeah. at the end of this. But even in those situations... The men, in, the men that we're talking about, were already married. Right. They, they didn't. Right. They were ne- no. They were not get married. Right, and that is that is an apostolic rule that is observed by the Orthodox as well. You cannot be married before, or or you a married a priest cannot get married, but a married man can be made a priest, right. and that is that is spoken of in the early in the early church, and so uh, that. That has been a sort of taken as an apostolic norm to be uh, east and west. We have in the west the celibate clergy following what Christ proposed that some give up, you know, the married life for the sake of the kingdom of God. Uh, that's, that's a choice of seeking perfection in that state. Not that those who are married are not seeking perfection, but uh, it is certainly uh, a complicating factor of that search. Um, and you're essentially having to live two vocations. But that's what the church has done, in the East at least, and so those kinds of things usually have some uh, prehistory. So we'll wait with patience, trusting in, uh, as the Pope has suggested, trusting in the Holy Spirit, realizing the Holy Spirit's not going to do something that the Father and the Son don't. Listen, there is a small faction of people that make a lot of noise out there, on both ends of the spectrum, quite frankly. You know, no one needs to fear that they're going to wake up tomorrow to a female priesthood and same-sex marriages. No, and these kinds of fears are not coming from God. Uh, you know, there's the principle in the spiritual life of the of the purgative way, and the person who starts out to be holy, and this applies to all of us here in the church who presumably take seriously our baptism, uh, among the trials that we will face is encountering the scandalous priest or encountering the uh, the pastor who otherwise uh, causes a scandal, whether, you know, through word or behavior or whatever it is. Uh, and that would include the risks and the dangers that we see the church to have. But our confidence can't be in human beings, but in he who stands behind the church and stands behind the office holders within all of the limits with which uh, the church herself has defined. And in that we can have absolute confidence. If we have faith in God, faith in Christ, then we have to have faith in the church and in the offices established by Christ with the prior charisms that uh, he intended 
for it. Those are necessary to preserve the church to the end of the world when he returned, which was the last thing he said while he was on the planet. And I will be with you until the end of the age. And when the end of the age comes, the church will be there and Christ will be there. Um, we got an email from Denny in the great state of North Carolina. He says, my wife is a Lutheran and going through RCIA currently. I am a Catholic since Easter. She hasn't had communion for some time and wants to go to the Lutheran church for communion. How should I respond to her? Well, a couple of things. Um, uh, and, and I'm going to have to update you first, Jack. You know that it's now called the OCIA. I am. I just read the emails, Colin. Okay. Well, that's good. Uh, <laughs> but, no, if she is sincere about becoming a Catholic, then, she, then on that basis she cannot go to the Lutheran communion. Uh, the reason being the church does not accept that it actually is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Uh, this was, uh, there is the principle of consubstantiation, obviously, which is different from the church's view of transubstantiation. But it's not the doctrinal question. It's the question of holy orders. The Lutheran clergy do not receive the holy orders which are recognized East and West in the Catholic and Orthodox churches of a sacrificial priesthood that represents the sacrifice of Calvary and gives to the people the body and blood of Christ. Just as the priests participated in the sacrifice in the temple and shared from that sacrifice, we as in the common priesthood share from the sacrifice of Christ and that is what is accomplished in the Mass. The Lutheran uh, the Lutheran ministerial clergy don't, don't operate according to that principle. They don't receive their ordination according to that intention, and therefore they do not do what our priests do, and that is to confect the Holy Eucharist. Uh, so sadly, uh, it would be a contradiction of the path that she is on for her to do that. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Ryan in Sanford, Connecticut, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's one 833 288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hot off the presses for October from EWTN Publishing, our good friend John Martinoni offers blue-collar apologetics, how to explain and defend Catholic teaching using common sense, simple logic, and the Bible. EWTN's John Martinoni introduces you to the major doctrines of the Catholic faith and explains why they're true and shows you how to explain them effectively to Protestants and cafeteria Catholics. 
um, in ways that will draw them into those truths. Uh, within the pages of this book, you'll find ways to effectively um, uh, talk to atheists, uh, to address anyone about your faith, uh, explaining Marian dogmas and much, much more. Blue Collar Apologetics by John Martinoni from EWTN Publishing, available at EWTNRC.com by Catholic Shop EWTNRC.com. To the phones we go. First up is Ryan, as advertised, a first-time caller in Sanford, Connecticut. Listening, or watching, rather, on YouTube today. Ryan, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello. Hey there. What's your question today? So, um, I have a friend who's a Jehovah Witness, and we tend to debate a lot, and I have uh, trouble about a certain verse in First Corinthians, which was... Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, where it says, He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. And he tells me that they're referring to Jesus there. And I'd just like to know your input on that. Uh, well, that's a good question. And I, I don't know that off the top of my head I have the passage up here. Um, yeah, and I'm looking to see who in the previous, uh, I mean, he's talking about, he's talking about the division in Corinth, the Apollos, some were for Apollos, some were for Paul. Um, he's talking about those who did baptism. Uh, that's, of course, not identical. The, the, the minister of the baptism, of course, uh, is, is Christ in the sense of it's accomplished in Christ, uh, but he is not Christ in the sort of actual sense. Um, but uh, he says, for Christ did not send me. Okay, let me go down to the bottom of this here. No, I think I'd have to look at it deeper um, in order to see. He he's speaking about the. Sounds like homework, Colin. Yeah, it does. It does sound like a little bit of homework because there is a bit of an apposition there between who he is talking about and trying to find who that particular pronoun is pointing to. I can't deny that that's an issue, uh, in the sense of one that we have to solve. I don't think it gives any kind of, uh, was it being used to give some kind of credence to the Jehovah Witnesses, or how is it being used that he even made this um, analogy, this, this statement? He was using it to say that, so when, I, when it says, uh, whom God made our wisdom, um, like he was using the word whom to be, it's talking about Jesus, saying that, because they believe that, um, like, Jesus is not God, so he's not the Father. Mm -hmm. Even though it's that the, we like as Catholics, it's the Father who created everything, but he seemed to pick it up that it's saying uh, Jesus, which I don't really know. Like, you know that that's the kind of thing like um, you know ju jumping on the use of all or something like that. That all 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 have sinned. Well, it can't. Mary must have sinned because all have sinned. That's all in the mind of the of the speaker. Now, granted, our listener has to parse that and to understand who is being addressed there. 
So it's, it is indeed that question, but I, I don't see that that's a basis of something so substantial as saying that Christians who have held the position that the second person of the Trinity became man for the salvation of the world for 2,000 years uh, are suddenly wrong because we have an equivocal pronoun in 1 Corinthians 30. I think the logic of that is very weak. Because if you're trying to distinguish Jesus from God, then how do you deal with before Abraham came to be, I am? And then that the fact that they tried to stone him and that at his own, you know, his own, uh, at his judgment before Caiaphas, he was accused of equating himself with God and he did not deny it. So I, I think that's a very weak, a very weak use of any kind of logic to defeat the notion that Jesus is God. And the church dealt with this for 300 years. Remember, it wasn't until the Council of Ephesus that the Orthodox faith, which was certainly the belief of Rome and the belief of the apostolic sees, those that derive from the apostles, was controversial, made controversial by some preachers who made distinctions between Jesus and God. So, in some ways, this is being revived today. Nothing is new under the sun, and it comes around it again and again in different heresies. And I think this is a case of that, where what the church clearly understood without equivocation, it now is confuted or controverted on the sake of a pronoun that to me doesn't make sense. So I, I think whether you or he or I can resolve that pronoun question Nonetheless, there are many other things in sacred scripture and certainly in the, uh, in the tradition of Christianity which refute the idea that Jesus is not God. Now, this is the very point upon which the battles of the 4th century took place, in which it was decided, in which it was argued, well... You know, yes, the second person, but Jesus is a human being, and therefore he's not God. We can speak of Mary being the mother of Jesus, for example. But don't say Mary is the mother of God. Well, the church concluded that for what the claims of Christ to be true had to be that the person whom he was united to the human nature to which it was united, was both God and man. And so, like on the question of Mary, she was not the mother of the man Jesus, she was the mother of God in, because the second person of the Trinity became man. But he wasn't a human person, he was a divine person. And so, this is old territory. And reviving it on the base of a pronoun seems uh, a very weak, ultra-weak argument. Thanks, Ryan. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Matthew is in North Carolina listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Matthew, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hey, gentlemen. Um, hey, thanks for taking my call. I love the show. I love EWTN. The question I have is about vasectomies. And I got a vasectomy in my 30s. I'm in my 50s now. Devout Catholic now. Wasn't in the church back then. Um, I got the vasectomy for because uh, I love my wife and I want to obey her her wishes. But um, 
I've confessed it in a confessional. Um, is anything? What does the catechism say about that? Check me. Well, the catechism deals with those doesn't deal with those kinds of issues, but there is a body of moral theology, moral theology teaching that is commonly accepted, and that is, generally, if you were of you and your wife were of reproductive age, or maybe had just married even, um, or something like this nature, where basically you were cutting off the fruitility, uh, fruitfulness of your marriage from the beginning, or or halfway through the possibility of that then there would be an obligation of reparation. And reparation is to undo the evil that was done. Now, in moral theology, that obli- positive obligation, it's like going to Mass on Sunday is the best example that people understand. You have an obligation to go to Mass. You're sick, or you've got to care for a sick person, or there's snow, heavy snow, or the roads are iced, or or whatever the physical obstacle is to going to Mass, you're excused. And so the question here is, what is the possibility for you to have that reversed? Considerations are where you are in late in life, later in life. You're not quite as late in life as Jack and I, but <laughs> <laughs> but later in life, what is the what is the financial cost to you? What is the, you know, from that point of view, how difficult would it be? What dangers does it entail, if any? They have advanced the microsurgery that is required to do that kind of thing, but you can also ask ask this kind of, those kinds of questions which I just gave. So, as I said earlier in life, before you were, if you had you become Catholic, it might be a different question. Um, and so, this this is a question certainly to discuss with your confessor. And be honest with yourself and honest with him and settle it there as well as in prayer Uh, because clearly the fact that you confessed it is the the principal way of making reparation for what you did. And whether it's physically necessary at your age and in your condition, uh, then that would be that would be a question yet to be determined. And I think you can you do determine that in prayer and you determine it in honesty and consulting with, uh, you know, a priest that you trust. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Um, we got an email from Anthony, and he says, Recently on a catechism podcast, They were talking about charms and how they were wrong. And I understand crystals, rabbit speed, and lucky charms. However, my in-laws are Protestant, and they think the same of our miraculous medals, St. Christopher medals, and Benedictine medals. How can I explain to them the difference? Well, a medal is an object of devotion. Uh, It's not a charm. It's not a belief that if I, you know... Uh, spin around in circles three times and hop on one foot for five minutes, then all my all my hopes and wishes will be answered, or something like that. It's not a reliance on lucky stars or on a lucky rabbit or a horseshoe or something of that nature. This doesn't put trust in God. The saints are those who are with God, and as we know in the in the Book of Revelation, that they sit on thrones. We're given the examples of the patriarchs, of the twelve apostles, and the patriarchs, the twenty-four elders. But this is true of all the saints; they share in Christ's governance of the world. This is the basis of the Church's idea of the intercession of the saints. 
that they are in glory. They share in the, in the glory of the Son. Uh, the Son is a mediator, and in a secondary sense to that role, uh, they mediate. And this happens in this world as well, when somebody mediates for us with somebody important. And so it's essentially a prayer. It's not a charm. Uh, it's not magic with a C or a K. It's a prayer. It's a prayer to that saint to intercede for God, and that's how we see it. Now, the question of the image on it is something we might take up after the after the break. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Open line Friday with Colin. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Our friends in Cleveland need to hear from you next week. AM 1260, The Rock is airing their 2023 Fall Pledge Drive Wednesday through Friday. So if you're listening in Cleveland or if you're listening anywhere, please be generous and support your local EWTN Catholic radio station. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines at 833-288-3986. Colin, we're talking about the difference between Lucky Charms and Sacramentals. Right, and we're talking about charms that you would dangle from your wrist or around your neck to protect you uh, by way of magic or superstition from evil as opposed to the breakfast food. (laughs) So... um, yeah, the difference is, as, as I mentioned to the caller uh, before, uh, or the emailer, I guess, is that we, we perceive the idea, the difference there is between superstition and true devotion. Devotion to God and in God, in Christ, devotion to his saints who reign within in heaven. Remember, we are all called to be brothers, and we are all made brothers and sisters of Christ through baptism. We persevere in that to the end of our life. We see the glory that is awaiting us as previewed in in the book of Revelation and uh, uh, certainly in the writings of the saints who speak of that. But the idea of the, of the icon is something that developed in the history of the church and was proposed, accepted, defended, of course, especially against Protestantism. But I think one starting point is to say, well, what is an icon? And we can go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, where Paul tells us regarding the Word, he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, the Word within the Godhead is the image of the Father. He is the, the fullness of the Father poured out. And so in becoming man, the fullness of the Godhead, at least in, of the Word, is now made in a human visage, in human form. We're told this in Philippians, you know, did not deem equality of God something to be grasped, but rather emptied himself. And so Christ did this for us, and he himself created an image or an icon, as the Greek would have it, an image of God. And we are called to be images of him, to put on Christ, to put on the image of God, to be an icon of Christ and therefore of God. And so on the logic of this, to make an image of Christ, whether as many of the early early works were, flat pi- pictures uh, and so on, or as statuary became possible with the freedom of the, uh, of the church and so on and the flowering of the arts, these are representative of 
what we are called to be and who he is. That's the difference between a devotional image and an image of some occult object or some human or profane object being worn for the sake of some magic that we hope for, some instinct of respo- seeking response from, okay, whoever's out there. That's a dangerous practice. And that's why superstition and charms and these kinds of things are a version of idolatry because, you know, if they are not very far down the word, we're down the road towards uh, worshiping a god other than the god, they are at the beginning of the path because they are turning away from the truth and the reality to something that is false and simply a wisp of air. But there are those who will help a person proceed down that path. So charms and those kinds of things are not only silly, but um, now some people wear charm bracelets and things like that. They do that because they like the looks of little horses. or that, That's a different thing. So the motive plays a big part in that. But people who do it thinking it'll make them lucky or successful or uh, have power or whatever they want because of some impersonal force that's going to come to their assistance or maybe one they've even given a name to that's not God, that's a different matter. 833-288-EWTN. We want to hear from you today at 833-288-3986. Next up is Lisa. She is in Cleveland, Ohio, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Lisa, have you gotten yourself trapped in a corner by a second grader? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) What, What can we do for you today? My son is wondering why in the Mass, before we say the Our Father, the priest says that we dare to say the Our Father. You know, being in second grade, for him a dare is, I dare you to go <laughs> erase the teacher's blackboard. Yeah, so well... We dare to say. Yeah, I remember being in second grade and uh, <laughs> how boys are at that age. <laughs> well, you think what? Think a little bit. It's actually a good question in light of what we were just talking about, images and charms and the difference with the miraculous metal and so on. Uh, let's take that thought a little bit further. We dare to say we can be little Christ, which means we dare to say we might actually become like Christ in holiness. Now, not in the fullness of what that means, of course, but little versions of him, little icons of him. In the same way, because of the greatness of baptism and the greatness that faith in Christ and his passion, death, and resurrection has accomplished, in a way, this is a a blessed dare that I dare... You know, if we said... I dare say I'm a friend of Jack, Jack Williams. I don't know if I am or not, but I, am I a friend of oh, Jack? Of course you are. Okay, I dare say that. Well, you were until you said that. <laughs> <laughs> or you know, I dare say I'm the a friend of this famous person. Well, when you get above all the famous per- persons in the worlds and the bishops and the clergy and the priests and the actors and the actresses and the ball players and all, you give all of those and you finally get up to God because of baptism, because of Jesus, I dare say God is my Father. 
So what the church does, if you listen closely to the language of the Mass, and this would be a good thing for a seven-year-old to start doing, because the words are what we call sacramental words. In other words, they're speaking of spiritual things that we don't necessarily see in the world or understand, but are truths that the church is teaching us through the liturgy about that world. And so one of the this truth here is that the greatness of our Christian calling and our Christian baptism, that we dare call God our Father. And that's, that's such a beautiful thing. But all the words of the Mass, if we listen carefully to them, are teachings about divine realities that we only know because of faith in Christ and the gift of faith to the Church and the exploration of that gift down through the centuries by the fathers of the church, by the doctors of the church, by the popes and the bishops, and, and even many lay people who have elaborated that faith well. But we, we know so more, much about it, but all the beginning of that is we dare call ourselves brothers and sisters of Jesus and sons and daughters of the Father, and what a glorious thing that is. So it's a different kind of dare, uh, but it's, it's a happy dare, and it's a good dare that you can't lose out on if you grasp onto it and hold. How's that, Lisa? That sounds great. Thank you. You're very welcome. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Kate would like to know, what is the best way to dive into the Catechism for the first time? Chapter 1, page 1. <laughs> you know, that's a good way. There's another book. I, I, I think it's still for sale. Uh, Ignatius Press published the Compendium, which is, you know, in the Catechism is multitudinous footnotes, both from Scripture, the Fathers of the Church, uh, and the Saints, and so on. And it's a really good thing to have with you when you're reading the Catechism for the first time. You know, because in the Bible, you know, for in our Catholic Bibles, there's very often theological footnotes, footnotes so people don't get the wrong idea and wrong sense out of a passage. Well, the same thing is here. How many are actually going to go down and look at those numbers? You know, number 657 and then go to some encyclical or whatever. But if something confused you where you were well what does that mean then you want to go to that and you can't have a whole library so it's good to have the compendium where you're going to at least get uh, the significant references that are made in the catechism so that would be a good companion to reading catechism and that's like set up in question and answer form uh i believe there's an element of that yeah yeah so but i think there's also just the straight you know the the footnotes and things like that. So you'll be able to you'll be able to to dive into that and discover more than you would just by reading it. At least and gain a better understanding. Uh, obviously, to have a, a Bible by, because although you can see the quote, maybe you need to see the context, the before and after of the quote. And you're not likely to have the Summa Theologia there, but, uh, you know, if you, if you had a substantial theological library, as many lay, lay people do, 
there's something that would help you. So many of the kinds of things which, which would make a theological library. But I think the Bible and the compendium would be a good start for anybody. But do it all first by praying and asking for the guidance of the Holy Spirit, your guardian angel, your patron saint. Uh, and on the basis of that, you know, dive into the work of trying to go through the catechism. Next up is Karen. She is in the great state of Ohio listening on Living Bread Radio. Karen, you're on with Colin Donovan. Well, hi to both of you. I love your show. Okay, um, this is, I know there's not a concrete black and white answer to this, but it's in regards to Mother Mary mm-hmm. uh, living her life, uh, living her life on earth as fully human like we are except without any spot of sin mm-hmm. if if in her emotional life rubbing elbows with her um, her neighbors, her village her, her even the apostles themselves who were sinful um, just peop- all people other, other than herself if she and she lived her life out amongst sinners because we're all sinners. So, would she have been emotional? Would that have been a painful experience for her? Like, mm-hmm. um, emotionally. I, I think I get the gist, gist of the question. Um, well, the answer actually is a fairly simple one. And that is after our Lord, Mary had the highest virtue of all the saints, and some have argued that if you put the virtues of all the saints together, she would still be on top of that, in other words, collectively. So the perfect moral creature in that sense. So the answer to that, I mean, there's a deeper theological answer which I'll give, is you've heard probably the old adage, there but for the grace of God go I. Well, Mary lived that. That's the virtue of not taking, not giving scandal. In other words, not leading others to sin by your bad example. That's giving scandal or active scandal. And also not taking it. That's the much harder one. We look at our world and there are many things that are absolutely scandalous. And there's a whole industry of passive scandal, of detraction, of libel, of slander, of speculation, and so on from the reality shows to the newspapers to the news to conversation and so on. That can be sinful as well, and it's called passive scandal, and Thomas Aquinas devotes a section of the Summa to dealing with this issue of passive scandal. And that's, it's not about seeing sin and knowing that it's sin. It's not about overlooking sin but it's about a compassion for the sinner that recognizes the need there. And Pope John Paul II, and maybe this is something to keep in light of in in terms of synod and synodality and the questions they will address. Pope John Paul II, in his encyclical on the Father, which he called Divas in Misericordia, Rich in Mercy, he goes into this because he says, when we say God is love, we're speaking inside the Trinity, the love. But what about God's love towards man? What characterizes it? That is mercy. 
And he says that's God reaching down to the sinner and lifting them out of their misery. That can be primarily their spiritual misery, the misery which sin causes. Or the material misery, too, as often God helps us get out of our, our financial and other difficulties that we run into and finding jobs and all kinds of things that God reaches down and assists us in doing those things. So God acting towards mankind is really incarnate in Christ who came here to redeem us from our sins, from all of the things which make us, all the things which Our Lady would have seen in other people. Now, we don't know that she had the gift to read hearts, not even, you know, a charism such as Padre Pio or other saints have had. And certainly as our Lord, as God, that was not a charism. It was a constituent nature of his divinity to know what was in the human heart. But she may not have had that gift, or she may have. But whether, in either case, she would have understood the human condition and she would have seen a merciful way to reach in there and reach that person and help that person. Um, we tend to be scolds rather than extenders of mercy. And I think that's, that's a mistake because a godlike action would be to reach down to the sinner and lift them out of their mire, their spiritual mire, even their physical mire and, as we can. And there have been some examples in the history of this. Look at the, look at the joy and, and uh, demeanor that is attributed to Mother Teresa, St. Teresa of Calcutta, in dealing with the poor, in dealing with other people, and the always joyful look on her f face and the way that she speaks. And even when she spoke at that prayer breakfast where President Clinton and Hillary Clinton were there, she spoke in a way that was not so much scolding as simply speaking the truth when she said, the greatest poverty is abortion. The taking of a human life because of, we're avoiding all the inconveniences and responsibilities around that human life. She didn't say that, but I'm adding it to what Mother Teresa said. So I think if Mother Teresa was able to be joyful and, and give guidance and light even in that situation then this is has to be one thousandth of the ability of if not a millionth of the ability of the blessed mother to do that thing so i don't because part of the thing that we learn is certainly in moral theology and studying you know the, the the nature of man the division of man into his different faculties and that is that the purpose of the natural virtues is to, is to heal these wounds. And if you possess natural virtue, then all these wounds of, of, of concupiscence and pride and others, which would lead you to judge and to criticize and not be patient, not want to, those things are healed. And this is the ordinary saint. This is in the ordinary way of perfection, which is opened up, pos made possible in, in the faith because of the sacraments, because of the, you know, the wisdom of the church in these matters. If that is done, can be done with the ordinary person where virtue heals those wounds, what about what was grace doing in a person who never had those wounds? never had those wounds of concupiscence that the saints needed to by step by step by step and the grace of God and the acceptance of, had to repair before they could part building on to achieve an even greater holiness. She started out without those wounds. 
So her virtue was immaculate like her soul throughout her life. And so she never had those wounds which lead us to judge and criticize others and give a word of criticism which is biting and wounding and sarcastic or what, ironic or whatever it is, but rather delicately and gently as a mother to do those kinds of things. And I think when we conceive Mary in that way, we can better think of how we ourselves ought to treat others and, and live uh, as she did. I think she could read one heart for sure, and that was her own. Yes. And she knew the source of all of her own goodness. Self-knowledge is the beginning of of the spiritual life for most of us yeah. and she started out with that yeah. Yeah. yeah thanks so much karen that was a great question 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number i don't know if you're like me but i love a good radio drama and if you can find a radio drama that is edifying to the to the soul then you should be all over i'm listening. offer that for what you. is it Family Theater Classic Radio, the old Father Patrick Payton mm-hmm. radio dramas. Yep. We bring them to you every Sunday night at 11.30 p.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Denise, a first-time caller in Atlanta, Georgia, listening on the Quest. Denise, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi. Um, what's the difference, if you can explain it, mm-hmm. the more simple the better, um, between... Um, image and likeness sure well you may have called the wrong day of the week for that but uh, I'll try to keep it simple uh, the distinction I've most often heard is that we say we are we are in the image of God means we're human persons that we have the faculties of will and intellect if and uh, intellect and will so we think of in God there's the Father Son and the Holy Spirit the the, the Son is the word that's the perfect reflection of God in his knowledge. The spirit the, is, is like the will. That's the perfect, uh, the perfect reflection of, uh, of God in, in, his, in his act, his, his love. And that's why we say God is love. That's the essential feature characteristic of his act. So that would be one way to see that we have that within us, damaged as we've been talking about for the last 15 minutes, all wounded and damaged. Likeness is... When we get closer and closer and closer to the polished image, the image, the true likeness of God, we have in our nature the image of God, as do the angels. And a third of them ended up in an unpleasant place. And they will never have the likeness of God as a result of that. We have that chance because we can change our minds as they cannot. They're fixed on their conviction that we know how everything ought to be run and God's way is no good. We can change our mind on that and we can accept the will of God and we can see the beauty and the wisdom of that will. And as we get closer to him and our wills are ever more in union with him, of course we become images of Christ, something we've been talking about here, more perfect images. Uh, this is why Mary is such a great example. This why this has been called the Marian Age, because Mary has put herself forward by the will of God in Lourdes and Fatima and Guadalupe and other places to, tell, to, to give the world an example of, of seeking Christ in her humble, simple, grace-filled way. And when we do that, we become ever more like God, not just in the fact that we have the image of God by our nature, but that we have the likeness of God by our acts. Love. The more in love we are, 
with God and man, the more we have the likeness of God. And that's the perfection of all the virtues, and it goes with the receipt of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and many other things. But that's what we're trying to achieve with our wounded, uh, our image made, created by God, perfect, but wounded by original sin. And quickly, we'll head to Melanie, a first-time caller in northern Kentucky, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Melanie, I hate to do this to you, but just a couple minutes left with Colin Donovan. What's your question today? Could you explain what it means to die to oneself? Yeah, I die to ego. That would be one way of looking at it. There's a modern psychological term, the I, the id, the ego. Uh, ego uh, is the Latin word for I as a pronoun, just as in English, I. So dying to self means to, to realize that by our perfect self-surrender to God and to others, we become less and he becomes more. There's a beautiful thing, statement made by Fulton Sheen when giving a retreat to priests years ago. I heard the tapes, I think it was Cor ad Cor Loquitur, heart speaking to heart, when he said the more the priest puts himself forward, in his priestly actions, the less God is seen. The less he puts himself forward, the more Christ is seen. And so that's an example on the priestly level, and on the lay level it would be applicable too. If we want to be have the likeness of Christ, and, and not just the image of God, but the likeness of Christ in his holiness, we have to be prepared to put ourselves in the background. And that's a component of all of the virtues, a choice of the other verses. And Pope John Paul II called it the gift of oneself, the, the self-donation, whether it's given in marriage to the spouse, whether it's given in the priestly and religious life uh, to God, to Christ, the church, um, or in the individual life lived for the sake of others and for the sake of God. That's a dying to self. But it's a long road, it's a hard road, and it requires a lot of work. And really all of these vocations that you mentioned are... are um, are pointed towards enhancing that ability, right? They are. They, they're roughing, you know, chopping off the smooth, the rough edges of us and making us smooth. On behalf of our host, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again on Monday with Father John Tregilio. Until we get together then, have a great weekend and God bless.